how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Richard Melville Hall, better known as Moby, is a musician, songwriter, singer, producer, and animal rights activist. His music has been featured in over 200 movies and shows, including The Saint, The Beach, and The Born Identity. In his latest project, Moby Doc, the musician teamed up with former music video editor Robert Gordon Browger to create a, quote, surrealist biographical documentary about Moby's life being an animal rights activist and a trailblazing electronic musician. In this interview, Moby talks about his friendship with David Lynch, his views on surrealism, how he thinks about open vulnerabilities as an artist, positive and negative mentors in life, creativity and philanthropy, and how he approaches creative collaborations. I guess about eight years ago, I had this idea to make an acoustic record, like a very quiet acoustic record. And I wanted to make a very short documentary that just documented the process of making this record. And then two things happened. One, the acoustic record fell by the wayside. And the documentary itself wasn't very interesting. But the man who had edited the documentary got excited at trying to turn it into a more sort of elaborate, full-length feature. And so we started working on it. And uh, because I used to be a documentary judge for Tribeca Film Festival and independent, the International Documentary Association, I've seen a lot of documentaries. And pretty much our main overarching goal with this documentary was to make something very, very unlike any of the documentaries I'd ever seen. How did you first get involved with Tribeca? How did you get in that position to be a judge? Oh, they just asked. Uh, and I, I mean, it happened a few times. Um, I think the last time I judged was probably like, I don't know, eight years ago. It was certainly a while ago. Were you, were you just known? So how did you kind of get involved with the film world? I know a lot of your music has been on just hundreds of soundtracks. Is that where the initial crossover started or where did it kind of begin? 
yeah, I mean, I can't say that I'm really directly involved in the film world. You know, this this documentary, Moby Doc, I certainly cannot say that it it fits neatly into the world of contemporary film production because it's very idiosyncratic. It's more, you know, it's more surreal, quite experimental. Um, but uh, as far as getting involved in the film world, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so I feel like it's really hard to live in Los Angeles and not be in the film world. Kind of like I imagine if you live in Perth, Australia, to some extent you're aware, you're aware of what's going on with surfers. So what did this look like? You got some footage. Was, was the editor you're talking about, is that the director, Rob Gordon Browfer? Yes, yeah, so we started out as the editor and then he became the director and the editor. Uh, and yeah. What, what did this full project look like after that? Like, did you guys just start doing things together? Like, how did you approach it in terms of a collaborative medium? Well, a lot of it was guided by the idea that we, as I mentioned, that we didn't want to make something conventional. You know, because there are a lot of great music documentaries, but a lot of them are very, very similar. You know, they they tell the story almost exclusively through either archival footage or talking heads, you know, interviews with people. And the only person we interviewed in the final cut of the movie is David Lynch. Uh, so, yeah, as far as it being collaborative, uh, I mean, we just kept sort of asking ourselves, like, how can we tell the story in a really interesting way? And how can we also not be arbitrarily constrained by traditional film structure, you know? And once you liberate yourself from that, you can pretty much do anything. You know, you can, you can shoot things with a beautiful camera and a great director of photography, or you can shoot things on your phone. You know, you can use flawless archival footage or you can use something on YouTube that someone shot in their backyard in 1983. Like it's, you know, once you're no longer trying to make something arbitrarily conventional, you can really creatively do quite a lot. Hmm. So going kind of down that route, but also, you know, I'm sure as a judge and just someone who I'm sure you've seen many, many documentaries, what did you want to make sure was in this? Like, was there certain pieces that you like, well, this really needs to be there? Because this is a, this is a story about you. So were there threads or themes and those type of things? Well, the main theme, I mean, I guess the overarching idea was to be honest. You know, I mean, it's, there's, it's surreal, it's unconventional, but it's also very honest. And the recurring theme is looking at, you know, the idea you know, the mistake that I made that a lot of us make, which is uh, assuming that external things can fix internal issues. Mm. You know, my belief that, you know, fame or even materialism could fix deep-seated psychological issues that hadn't been addressed. And, you know, through the memoirs I've written and through this movie, the idea is to really demonstrate that, you know, and to sort of like depict my struggles with that you know, uh, you know, and to be very, very honest, which hopefully makes it more relatable and maybe makes it easier for someone watching it to 
almost connect their own experience to it. Hmm. So listen to some other interviews you've done over the years and you've kind of talked, you've been very open. You've kind of talked about the consequence of lifestyle and your road to recovery. Um, did that all start during the recovery or have you always felt you needed to be vulnerable kind of as an artist and a musician? Uh, I mean, I don't have a ton of objectivity or perspective about myself. So, I mean, I, I don't know where that comes from, whether it's from family, whether it's from watching Sesame Street when I was growing up, um, listening to Joy Division and The Cure. I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to sort of like, you know, maybe in therapy or somewhere, go back and sort of like deconstruct the sort of my tendency to overshare publicly. Hmm. So kind of looking in hindsight as well, and I'm sure you were, you know, thinking about your, your full life while making this film, how did, how has the music that you've made kind of changed you? And do you see, you know, growth in it from album to album, or do you see different parts of your life? I mean, musically, what's, what I find interesting is when I first started making music, you know, when I was eight years old, nine years old, it was simply driven by the love of making music. And then in high school, I played in bands. Uh, and everything, first and foremost, was driven by the love of music. But then in the 90s into the 2000s, I started having more commercial success. And to my regret, I started thinking about the commercial success. I started thinking about whether music was going to lead to the commercial success that I wanted. Um, and then I guess in around 2007 or 2008, I finally realized what a travesty that was. You know, there's nothing wrong with the marketplace. There's nothing wrong with commercial success, but music has the potential to be phenomenally, you know, to be beautiful, to be sublime. And I'm not even talking about my music, but just music as an institution. And it seemed to me criminal, almost unethical to in any way compromise a process that could lead to something that's beautiful or sublime in order to eke out a little bit more commercial attention. And so it was really around 2007, 2008, that I decided to focus more on, you know, to, to refocus on just trying to make music that I thought was beautiful and interesting and almost completely disregard the commercial aspect of it. Did you kind of just come to these conclusions on your own? Did you have like mentors and people you looked up to? I've heard you say uh, with several people you named, but you said something about like, you liked how Johnny Cash aged honestly was I think the way you said it. And as opposed to like hanging on to whatever made him popular, were there people you looked up to that, that come to mind like that, that kind of came to this perspective? Well, I mean, I think there are people we can learn from based on their positive example or the, you know, the, the things that they do that are positive. And then there are people we can learn from based on their negative example. You know, there are a lot of people we can look at them, you know, look at the choices they make and say, well, I don't want to be like them. So I guess I got to figure out how to make better choices or different choices than they made. Uh, and regarding, I mean, like what you're referring to is like regarding aging and fighting against aging, I guess in some instances can be interesting, but more often than not, it doesn't work. 
you know, and it's kind of, there's a desperation to it and a sadness to it. And I think there's something so much easier and healthier to just sort of accept that we age, you know, that's the nature of biological life. Biological life gets old and slows down no matter whether you're a paramecium or, you know, a sequoia or a human, you know, like that's just what happens. And I think, you know, like the people like Leonard Cohen, Johnny Cash, who've just allowed themselves to sort of age naturally. I found that to be encouraging. And in terms of creativity, the, I'd never really had a mentor. Um, there was one thing though, in around 2007 that I heard David Lynch say, uh, David Lynch said that, and I quote, creativity is beautiful. And it struck me because it was such a simple statement. And it really just reminded me that like, yeah, creativity can be beautiful and commerce and the marketplace is not inherently bad, but it's rarely beautiful. And again, like sort of compromising integrity in any way to accommodate the marketplace. If you don't have to do it, I don't know why you would. Were there other things you look to, to Lynch for? Maybe I know he's famous for, he's known as a director, obviously, but he's also like a painter and artist. And you're, you're already, you know, you're known for music, but you um, work with film a little bit. How else do you think about creativity and maybe some even relaxation between the music? Uh, well, I mean, as far as David's approach, I mean, the idea of being a polymath, you know, like, be, you know, enthusiastically being involved in a bunch of different disciplines, that just to me sort of makes sense. Um, I mean, there's a Ray Bradbury quote about that, and I'm paraphrasing where he said like, you know, like a human should be able to, you know, paint a picture, talk about quantum mechanics, write a song, um, figure out landscaping, um, be familiar with, you know, the works of Carl Jung and know how to bake a loaf of bread. And he says, you know, specialization is for insects. Um, and I do generally, I mean, I'm first and foremost, I'm a musician, but I, but generally I like that idea of like, take your enthusiasm and your love for creation and love for creating and see how many things you can do with it. How do you relate some of that creativity to your like other causes, like you're a well-known uh, animal rights activist and a vegan? Do you see a creative approach to that? Or how do you go about, you know, some of those aspects of your life as well? Well, regarding animal rights activism, I mean, that's the single most important thing in my life, like even more important than my actual life. And, you know, everything else I work on, I love. But animal rights activism is, that's my job, you know, is trying to create a world where like simply animals are able to live their own lives and are not imprisoned, tortured and killed by humans. And obviously I don't have huge resources, so I have to try and figure out the effective use of the resources that I have. And especially around animal rights activism, there is a way to be creative that might not exist in other types of philanthropy. Uh, and specifically what I mean is, you know, products and media. 
because you know most philanthropy is not doesn't have a product component whereas animal rights activism has you know clothes it has beyond burgers it has impossible burgers it has media like you know forks over knives what the health game changers um and so i try to figure out with my limited resources how can i best either you know like donate to charities you know 501c3s or support politicians or PACs but also how can i help you know product development and media development kind of within that realm but also some of your creative pursuits how do you think about collaborations is it mainly a gut instinct like like how do you kind of choose you want to work with someone or work with a charity and those type of things well creative collaboration more often than not what i do is i just try to work with singers who have much better voices than i do and musicians who play instruments i don't know how to play so there's a collaborative component but oftentimes it's me just trying to like like with a singer like record their beautiful voice and then i take it to my studio and try and build a song around it uh so i don't know if it's collaborative in the true sense of the word you know where like you start with a tabula rasa and build something together like it's usually me hiring someone to lend their beautiful voice to something i'm working on do you also see this kind of experimentation in that way? Are you trying to get to something unique as like a racing fear? Do you think about fear? Do you worry about what the next thing is going to be? It sounds like you kind of, you, you don't care as much, you know, what happens once it's released, I guess you would say, but how do you think about some of those doubts and fears that maybe most people have? Um, I mean, my main fear is doing a bad job as an animal rights activist or as a climate activist like that's that's the without question those are i'd say the, the biggest fears that i have um you know the idea that you know like one like if i were dead and went in front of some sort of guardian of heaven and the guardian of heaven said you know you didn't do enough with the tools you were given I would probably say, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Like, I, I wish I'd been able to do more. Mm. Kind of in between those, you know, actual um, big events and albums and movies and everything you're doing, what does more to your day-to-day -day look like? What is your um, creative process and those type of things? And has it changed over the years? Yeah, I mean, many things have changed. Um, one thing that's changed is I don't go on tour. Like I realized touring, I, as much as I love playing music, I hate touring. Um, and touring really takes so much time away from being creative. You know, when you go on tour, you can't stay home and work on music or work on projects. So my daily life is so repetitive right now. And I love it. You know, I basically every day is exactly the same. So if someone says, how's your weekend? I was like, I don't have weekends. You know, I work seven days a week and I don't make exception. That's it. You know, I love working. Why would I ever think of taking a day off? Like when people talk about holidays, everybody else I feel is entitled to a vacation or a holiday. I'm not, 
you know, there's just, there's no way I could ever, I could justify that to myself. I don't, I haven't, you know, if I was to, maybe if, if we fix climate change and we are no longer using animals for human purposes, maybe I will take a day off then. How are you finding some of your inspiration today? I heard in an interview you were saying at the time of the interview, you were listening to like 1930s music and there's, there's a lot more outlets for all kinds of music today with the Spotify and these different things. Does that act, like, does it just kind of inspire you, but not necessarily relate to what you're doing or does it actually work its way into what you're doing now? Well, do you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting question because so much about the way in which music is made or distributed or listened to so much has changed, mm-hmm. you know, from I mean, the way recording studios used to function, the technology, the one thing that hasn't changed is the fact that we all have two ears, mm-hmm. you know, so whether you're listening to a punk rock band or a recording from 1927 or a John Williams score uh, no matter how it's made, we still listen to it the same way. And especially regarding voices, I think we still have that same basic emotional reaction to voices. And so I, you know, when, like, when I go back to the past and like listen to music that was made a long time ago, sometimes I'm fascinated by the production, but there's still that core emotion you know being delivered by the instruments but especially by the voices do you see that relation to the the type of film at least you like we're we're striving to make because it it is described as a surrealist biographical documentary how do you kind of express surrealism is it mainly a feeling that you get watching something well and i apologize if i'm going to be a little bit too clinical Mm -hmm. um but <laughs> every now and then I'll, I'll, I'll answer something in my head. And before I say it, I'm like, oh boy, here comes the grad student. Um, so surrealism is a very specific form of artistic expression. There's some, some expressions that have taken on a life of their own as like colloquial idioms, but I'm very interested in what they originally meant or they're, they're sort of the true meaning. Zen would be a good example. Like people talk about Zen as being relaxed or pretty. I'm like, well, actually Zen Buddhism is neither of those things. Like it's a very specific discipline. So surrealism in the way that it was first sort of almost invented by Andre Breton in France in the early 20th century was the idea of freeing the subconscious from arbitrary, at that time, arbitrary bourgeois constraints. And so the art that they made was not weird for the sake of weird, it was weird to liberate the artist and also to liberate the person experiencing it. So whether it was Dali, Buñuel, uh, I mean, so many of the famous surrealists, um, Max Ernst, Man Ray, et cetera, they were, you know, they were trying to basically bypass the rea- like conventional reality. That's the idea of surrealism, you know, like it's above reality, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, so when I use the word surreal, it's, it's not just wacky weird for the sake of wacky weird. It's the idea of first and foremost, 
a rejection of unnecessary, arbitrary constraints. Mm -hmm. And then to try and somehow, you know, liberate, it's a very big word, but maybe, you know, lowercase letters free the, our, you know, the, the consciousness a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to be fair, also sometimes weird for the sake of weird can be great as well. Mm-hmm. So some of that, I mean, you're, you're giving a, a, a definition, obviously you're kind of saying, what if not, if you were to, and I, maybe you have discussed surrealism with David Lynch or someone, you're more, you're talking about the ideas and, and things like that. Is that is that more so if you were to have a conversation about something that could be classified as surrealism? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's putting it, I mean, there are different ways to look at it. There's also putting it in historical context. Um, you know, because surrealism was interesting because it was also a sort of artistic, literary expression of psychological theory you know, this was right after Freud and right after Jung. And the, the idea of the subconscious, you know, the idea of the hidden conscious was so new in a way. Well, okay, the way it was being expressed. And so much music and art in the early 20th century was really inspired by that idea of like, oh, you know, how do we, we're, you know, the, for them, it was a new millenn- new century, new 20th century. And they're like, how do they, free themselves from the arbitrary constraints of former society. Um, And uh, so I I love the historical aspect of it. Uh, I also simply love the art that was a result of it. And that idea that structure is arbitrary, sometimes not like regarding airplanes, structure is not arbitrary. Regarding building a house, structure is not arbitrary. Maybe Frank Gehry would disagree. Um, But regarding art, music, literature, structure is as arbitrary as the artist wants it to be, whether it's a filmmaker, musician, whatever. It's like, and I love, like, it's one of the reasons I love David Lynch is as a filmmaker, he uses structure when he wants to. Like when using structure, conventional narrative structure serves a good purpose, he will use it like in his movie Inland Empire. But then the moment he loses interest in structure, structure flies out the window, as opposed to as we watch most TV and movies, like the structure is never questioned or modified. And I think that feels very almost tyrannical. Do you also see it? So you said he would maybe use it and then and then not use it somewhere else. Do you also see it as, as just a series of individual choices? Do you think about you know your music and your art and your films in the same manner? Sort of. I mean, ultimately, the way in, and forgive me if this is really self-evident, but the way in which we respond to anything is objective. Mm-hmm. You know, there can be other externalities informing the way we respond to things, but really it's the individual responding subjectively and especially with music, you know, the criteria by which we respond to music is emotional, you know, almost exclusively and maybe historical, but largely it's, you know, how does the music make us feel? And what's fascinating about music is music sometimes can be incredibly experimental and the person listening to it won't know that it's actually that they're listening to experimental music. You know, I mean, like 
and composers and producers have played around with this for the longest time. Like there's some experimental music that is just experimental and you don't want to listen to it. Like, I'm sorry, I have a really hard time with like Stockhausen and Schoenberg. Um, I appreciate it, but I don't want to put it on in the morning when I'm making breakfast. <laughs> Whereas, you know, a lot of electronic music is very experimental but the audience wouldn't necessarily be aware of it because they're having a positive emotional reaction to it. How important do you think it is to know the historic structured past of any type of artwork before you are experimenting with surrealism? I guess that's my question. That's a, it's an interesting question. I don't know um, because obviously a lot of savants have made great art music books without fully understanding maybe historical context personally i like historical context um i think sometimes it can be fascinating uh it can also be interesting to go to context i mean this is going to sound way grad student -y and i apologize but like to contextualize the historical context um and so i think it's interesting i do think there's something to be said for learning a craft um, because a lot of like, for example, like the abstract expressionists, when they, you know, like, I mean, even, you know, someone like de Koenig, like he was a great painter who just decided to do something informal. And I think that as you've probably experienced, as I've experienced, like someone who's an abstract expressionist because they don't know how to paint, there's a good chance their art's not going to be that interesting. Right. The same way, like an experimental musician who doesn't actually understand music, it's a good chance you're not really going to want to listen to it for very long. Yeah. So even if you reject formal training and craft, it's really good to have the formal training and the craft, I think. Yeah. So it's more like maybe a road to mastery type of thing. And then if you, and then if at some point, you like Duchamp or whomever, like at some point, if you reject your craft and your mastery, that's great. It means that the rejection is probably going to be pretty interesting. Um, but if you don't have the craft to begin with, you end up with a lot of artistic flailing. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.